Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, your host of the Beyond Speaking podcast. Our guest today is Heather McGowan. She is a future of work strategist who helps leaders prepare their people and organizations for the fourth industrial revolution. In 2017, LinkedIn ranked her as its number one global voice for education. Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman frequently quotes Heather in his books and columns and describes her as the oasis when it comes to insights into the future of work. Heather helps employees and leaders alike prepare and adapt for to her jobs that do not yet exist. Heather, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Now, to set kind of the framework for this, um, can you explain the difference between the third industrial revolution and the fourth? Sure. I will start with a caveat because uh, Tom Friedman and I debate about this all the time. He doesn't think the fourth industrial revolution is a great framing for all that's going on. Okay. I agree with him. Where, where we, where we differ, not necessarily differ, but where I think it's important to understand the distinction between the two is when it comes to skills and training. Mm -hmm. So the third industrial revolution was really computerization of everything. And it was a period of time in which we pushed folks to get more and more advanced degrees and credentials. And it's a, it's a realm of time that I refer to as learn in order to work. Now we're in the fourth industrial revolution where that computerization has becomes increasingly pervasive and technology can start doing tasks for us. Mm -hmm. So instead of learning to use the tool in order to use it in the third industrial revolution, in the fourth, we learn with and from the tool. So the fourth industrial revolution is about working in order to learn continuously, learning to learn and adapt and create new value and using technology rather as a tool, rather than a tool as you use for leverage as a partner in your learning. You know, you talk a lot about human capital. How do you feel like that has changed over the past 50 years or so? Sure. So I think we're entering what I'm calling the human capital era. And it's from every perspective, from how we think about each other to how investors think about how value is created. So recently someone recalculated the S&P 500 from 1975 to 2020. In 1975, 83-84% of the value of all the companies on the S&P 500, the enterprise value, was derived from physical capital. So property, plant, equipment, tangible, because we made stuff. And now about 90% of the value is created from intangible patents, ideas. So even when we make stuff, that's not really the value. The value comes with the ideas behind it. Where do those come from? humans. So in 1975, Milton Friedman wrote an article in the New York Times. He was an economist from the University of Chicago. And he said, the only social responsibility for a company, full stop, is to return profits to shareholders. And that began the shareholder capital era. In 2019, the Business Roundtable, which is the largest collection of um, American companies, the CEOs of American companies, said it's not working anymore. Research from, Deloitte at, uh, from John Hagel at Deloitte said, we've had a 75% decline on return on assets over the last 65 years because we've focused on extracting value for shareholders rather than actually building value. So today, 2020, 2020 was the last time it was calculated, so I'll refer to that as today, even though we're in 2021. 2020, 90% of the value of all the enterprise, the enterprise value of all the companies on the S&P 500 comes from intangible, that's humans. The latest Edelman Trust Barometer found the greatest interest that investors had in creating long-term value 
wasn't in a, in a higher multiple and more customers. It was having the right talent for the future. So all signs to me are pointing to what I'm calling the human capital error. How do you measure that? I mean, that's one of those things like you can measure real estate or, you know, plants or whatever it might be. How do you measure human capital? That's what's most interesting right now is we don't know. Anybody who tells you they know <laughs> is saying, you know, okay, we could number employees, revenue per employee, engagement by employees, there are all these kind of metrics that we've used in the past, some of which might be applicable. I just spoke at a an, a, an accounting conference for top accounting um, agencies in the US. And that's where I started the conversation. I was like, we have to figure this out. Maybe instead of hours worked, it's hours off. Maybe the greater measure of a company is not necessarily how many hours you grind out of a human, but how well they are, how much you've invested in their education, how much time off as well as time on they've had. So that you get the best value from the employees isn't from hours. That isn't how humans work. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those things. I know that the one, it's not your time, it's your energy and, mm -hmm. you know, maximizing for that. I know you talk a lot about, uh, you know, sort of the future of learning. You know, what is a company's role when it comes to, uh, you know, developing their people, both individually and also sort of a, the, the business as a whole? Well, I think, you know, we're, you know, great resignation is a big conversation right now. And the usual levers we pull around things like that is let's pay people more or give them bigger titles. So it's either a social signal or a compensation. I think there are actually five parameters. So it's compensation, certainly one of them. It's safety. Am I safe at work? In the pandemic, there's been a lot of folks who didn't feel safe, whether it was because it was close contact or how they were treated. Increasingly, we're looking at when it comes to cognitive tests, psychological safety being key, um, engagement and values, um, lifestyle and balance, and career mobility. And I think career mobility might be one of the bigger ones. If we can satisfy you know, the safety factors, it's not what am I going to make here? It's what am I going to learn here that makes me more valuable either here or somewhere else? How do you think that shift for, you know, for the last one, where do you think that shift came from? The accelerated change. I mean, it used to be how much can I make here because this is my job and it will change incrementally over the decades that I'm here. Now it's changing dramatically. When I go give talks to folks, I say, you know, to, especially when it's a group of leaders or senior leaders, how many of you have people who report to you who have skills and knowledge you do not have or even understand? Almost all the hands go up. Didn't mm. used to be like that. Yeah. How do you, I guess, how as a leader, you know, you're, you're, I know you've got the sort of the big company wide, but let's say you're just a manager and you've got, you know, 15, 20 people that you're working with. How do you, re, how do you sort of learn those skills that people have and how do you utilize them? Well, one, you have to understand you're not going to know everything. So the days of the unquestioned expert leader are, are over. It's just not feasible. So how are you going to lead differently? You used to lead top down to drive productivity where you were the unquestioned expert. Now it's bottom up. How are you going to inspire potential? How are you going to help folks become self-propelled? How are you going to know who to defer to who has knowledge and skills you don't have when you have to make a decision in a realm where you're not the expert? It's a big flip for leadership. Do you have any examples of maybe uh, some companies or, or some groups or leaders that, that have done that especially well over the past, you know, say, year and a half? I actually have an example that's a decade old. I can't say the name of the company because it was from an old consulting uh, assignment, but I still quote them. Um, <clears throat> it's a biotech company that I did consulting for that had figured out since they were a high-tech bio bi biotech company and everybody who came into that company had to 
for the most part, have a master's, if not a doctorate. A doctorate was much more of a norm. So you're looking at a lot of highly credentialed individuals, and there's a tendency to take the mindset of, I have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. (laughs) And in this company, they realized that they were doing it to their detriment. And so in order to get above a certain level of leadership, and I can't remember if it was like manager or director level, they had different levels in this organization. If you wanted to be a senior leader, you had to prove that you could put your expertise in the backseat, that you could check your confirmation bias. And so they sent people through extensive training. And if you relied on your expertise when faced with any given problem, and they, they manage diseases like most biopharmaceutical companies do, Um, You often weren't seeing the full disease state. You were just seeing your slice of it. And you really couldn't lead effectively and innovate if you only saw it through the lens of your narrow expertise. That that was pretty incredible. Yeah. And what um, I guess that's one of those things as leaders, um, you know, how do you put yourself in those positions of of getting out of your area of expertise? Well, it's increasingly going to be the norm. I mean, the examples I've used in the last even the year and a half alone uh, of asking folks that question and everybody's hands going up either in person for the for the events I'm now having live or virtual events where I ask people to, you know, pull them or ask them to raise their hands. It's becoming a norm. Um, you're going to have to think differently about how you lead and inspire people because you can't be that unquestioned expert. What are some other ways that leaders need to adapt as they move into this post-pandemic world? Um, I don't think we've talked enough about the trauma a lot of folks have been through. So for the past, I think as of today, it's like 608, 609 days that we've been in some form of lockdown or some form of pandemic state. Uh, We've all been in the same storm, but we've been in absolutely different boats. And so realizing you may have some folks on your team who are single parents juggling either getting kids to school or getting them on Zoom or keeping them focused and trying to minimize their learning loss to single folks who've been in isolation and maybe depressed and anxious to folks who've had to say goodbye through a glass window. There's a lot that your people have been through and the majority of them, if not all of them, have helped you keep business continuity. So first and foremost, thank them ask them how they are, ask them how you can help them. I think empathy is going to be, it, it has been for a long time, but really coming out of this post-pandemic, the most important skill a leader can have is understanding where all your people are and give them a, a mental health day when they need it. I mean, the rates of, of mental health, uh, anxiety, and depression are just off the charts. And it's going to be what we're going to be talking about, I, I think probably for the next decade when we talk about human capital and wellness. Yeah, I think that's one of the things we had a discussion. I was at an event with some speakers and we were talking about what's the and, you know, a few years ago it was innovation or disruption. And right now you always have, you know, leadership, innovation, change team, but mental health is kind of the and like people want that Um, as you're talking to leaders. I know one of the things you talked about specifically was burnout. You know, you talked about some of those things, how as a leader, if that's outside of your skill set or maybe your comfort level, you know, some people really dive into connecting with people personally, right. others don't. For that leader who that's maybe not their natural state, what right. advice would you give to them in helping people deal with anxiety or burnout? Um, letting them know it's okay to not be okay, letting them know without asking them to overshare or get in their business. Take time when you need time. Um, here are the resources we have in our organization, and there are increasingly a number of 
online and anonymous resources people can tap into, modeling the behavior whenever you can. I mean, I, I last night I went to um, Gold Over America, which is I have a niece who's a who's a former gymnast and she wanted to see all these great athletes. Uh, and so what Simone Biles has done is incredible. She came out at some point and did, and that sounds corny, it does, an interpretive dance to how she's dealt with her anxiety. Mm-hmm. But it was something that the, the room was packed with, you know, young little girls who are looking up to her. And she's modeling like, I wasn't okay, and it's okay not to be okay and say when you're not okay. I think those kinds of, of uh, examples we have out there are going to be help more because there's too many folks suffering in silence. Kind of switching gears a little bit, you know, there's been a lot of talks about, you know, sort of the future of work, um, uh, having robots or AI or others as competition uh, mm-hmm. for people. I know you, you're, uh, you know, really big on human capital. Uh, yeah. What do you say to those people or companies that are have that either that worry or um, you know, you're saying that's kind of a myth that those things are going to take over, you know, completely, so to speak. Uh, can you talk about a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, technology is really good at answering a well-framed question. And humans, if you let them, are really good at finding and framing new challenges. And what we've done over the last, and and I would use the third industrial revolution here, what we've really done is make humans in competition with machines and having humans act more machine-like at a time when we need humans to act more human-like. What are some of those ways that humans can act more human-like? Well, instead of focusing on lunging at the skills gap as if we're ever going to close it, because one of my my mantras is the skills gap is not going to close and it's actually okay. Because when you think about how a skills gap forms, a human demonstrates a skill, the market values that skill in excess of supply, and you have a gap. That's actually another way of saying you have progress. (laughs) So if we assume that closing the skills gap is something we're going to be in constant pursuit of and never actually do then learning becomes part of work. And whether it's the the technical skills, which is mostly what people talk about when they're talking about the skills gap, Mm -hmm. but we've pushed in in our effort to lunge at that, particularly in education, we've had people lunge at acquiring technical skills that quickly um, expire. So I say skills, technical skills depreciate, but human skills appreciate. If we focus more and invest in investing in humans in terms of their uniquely human skills, whether it's in K-12 systems or university systems, talking about how do you get in touch with your empathy? How do you deal with ambiguity? How do you focus on developing better creativity? How do you improve your communication? Collaboration. I mean, we've been doing tasks in isolation, and many of those tasks can be taken over by technology. If the World Economics Forum is right, they think that 50% of our tasks in work today could be handed off to technology by 2025. I don't know if it's going to be that fast, but that's a pretty fast clip of us handing things off. Does that mean humans become irrelevant? No, it means the uniquely human skills become all that more valuable. What's a really good way that you've seen of improving you know, collaboration? Uh, during this time period? Well, getting um, more aware of how you collaborate. Like maybe you're good at the early phase of a process. You're really good with ambiguity and uncertainty and connecting dots other folks can't see immediately. Maybe you should play more of that phase of the process. Or maybe you're somebody who's better at once the challenge is framed at ideation and coming up with ideas. Or maybe you're better at communicating those ideas so other people get them. So it's a lot of it has to do, I think, with self-awareness. So you know what role you play on the team. Because we've kind of acted like 
you know, if it's a soccer team, maybe somebody's a better goalie, maybe somebody's a better striker, maybe somebody's a better scorer. But we throw everybody on the field to act like they're all going to play the same position and everybody should be equally good at all of them. Well, we're not. So a lot of it is about self-awareness and team dynamics, and we haven't spent very much time on that at all. But if you look at the challenges we face in the future, whether it's climate change and mitigation, the pandemic ending it or living with it as an endemic reality, uh, the futures of work, addressing income inequality, which is no longer just an economic issue, but it's a, I mean, moral issue, it's an economic issue as well. It's about a 1% drag on GDP. The challenges ahead of us are complex and they require collective intelligence and collaboration, but that's not how we've been building folks or planning for our future. I'm curious to know, I, I always like to know where people came from and how they got onto this. Where did you kind of find, you know, you're talking about your best, you know, these per person, a goalie or a striker or whatever. How did you find out you were the best at doing what you do? Um, you know, that annoying little kid who asked why, why, why I was that kid and I never stopped being that kid. So um, <laughs> I have an undergrad in uh, industrial design, which very much encourages you to ask why and to question the question and frame, find and frame challenges from uh, Rhode Island School of Design, Misty. And then when I started my professional career, which was in um, industrial design, product design, I kept asking, well, why are we going after this market? Why do you think that's the customer? And all the advice I got was given was, well, go get an MBA if you really want to ask those questions. So I went and got an MBA and I still ask those questions. Um, and then I went through a variety of work experiences and I became frustrated about two decades ago, 15 years ago, when I saw how much the world was changing and how poorly people understood it. And so at the time I was working uh, Part of my, my work life was in academia, helping them adapt to what is now called the future of work, but I didn't have that word for it then. I built a new college focused on innovation at one university, and I had corporate clients like the biotech uh, company I mentioned. Um, and I started sort of doing talks, although I didn't really frame it as that for both audiences. And then in 2014, I wrote an article on LinkedIn uh, that 100,000 people read in 24 hours, and I started getting speaking requests from all over the world. And then speaking just took off. And now it's all I do. I'm represented by great, you know, agents and bureaus like uh, Brian at uh, Premier. Yeah. Well, Heather, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thanks for, uh, you know, continuing to ask why, even if people are annoyed by it, because it helps a lot of other people out. So we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for being a guest here on the Beyond Speaking podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guests, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.